Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The word of the Lord. The sixth commandment is one of those that's really strong. It says, you shall not murder. Okay? Show of hands. Have you ever commit murder? Show of hands. If anybody near you has their hand raised, please tackle them and get them out of here as quickly as possible. Now, this is actually a really easy one, right? Like, have you ever committed murder? You sort of know if you have or haven't. Did I dishonor my parents? Well, probably, but I'm not totally sure. Did I honor the Sabbath? Eh, you know. Was that a lie? I don't know. Murder? Yeah, we, probably, we can nail that one down pretty quickly. And yet, and yet, Jesus takes time to explain it in our passage in Matthew. In other words, there's more than just what we think of when we hear do not murder. And yet, behind that phrase, do not murder, is something that is incredibly true about who God is and who we are and how we're supposed to look at everyone in the world around us. If you're looking at that phrase, do not murder, the word murder there is, it basically translates an unjust taking of an innocent life. An unjust taking of an innocent life. It's important to distinguish it from other terms that were actually available in the Hebrew, like killing in war, killing in hunting, or even killing in execution actually had their own terms. So what's meant here is the unjust taking of an innocent life. And when it comes to the Ten Commandments, they're not all universally agreed upon. You can't go to every culture and find that they're going to agree with all ten, but this one you will find. In every culture that has ever existed, the law has been laid forth, you shall not commit murder. But for Christians, it's rooted in something a little bit different. It's rooted in the value of a life. And the value of a life itself from a Christian perspective is rooted in the nature of God and of creation and the implications of the gospel. In other words, you can't just go around saying, well, I haven't stabbed or shot anybody today, so I'm good. Because Jesus takes it a step further. The Anglican Catechism that we looked at in the past explains it this way. What does it mean to not murder? 
And it says, since God declares human life sacred, so there, there's the start, human life sacred from conception to natural death, I may not take the life of neighbors unjustly, or, goes on, bear the malice in my heart, or harm them by word or deed, rather I should seek to cause their lives to flourish. If I am not causing others' lives to flourish, I am murdering them? See, the hard part with any commandment, and we've talked about this before, is there's an external and an internal. There's a negative and there's a positive, right? Do not murder is the external. Don't actually shoot people. But there's an internal that Jesus talks about, the attitudes of our heart, the way we think of others. There's the negative, don't kill people, but there's also the positive, love them. Let's look at how Jesus breaks this apart as he reinterprets the command himself. In Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is taking it from an external to an internal, right? It's pretty basic. Saying, what's behind the heart of murder? It's an attitude and it's words that matter. Our attitude and our words of anger with a brother or insulting fool, them, the, the fool thing, demeaning them, degrading them, any sense of my heart wanting ill for you, wishing bad stuff would happen to you, or using my words to break you down, and I'm guilty of murder. Jesus goes on in verses 23 and 24 to say, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The importance of relationships is so highly valued by Jesus. And as he's kind of reversing the do not murder, he says you need to have such good relationships with people that you shouldn't even come before the altar of God unless you are reconciled to your brothers. But Jesus, of course, is preaching this sermon on the mount to people in Galilee, which is about five to seven days foot journey from Jerusalem. So he's basically saying, you go to Jerusalem on the Passover to go worship God, and you recognize right as you're about to worship God that your brother back in Galilee you ha has something against you, Go the seven-day journey back, be reconciled, and then come the seven-day journey again, and then worship me. The nature of our relationships, our heart and our attitude to one another is so important that it is as if we have murdered if we are not in right relationship and right attitude with one another. Jesus is internalizing the command. Any thought or word against somebody else makes you and me a murderer. And at that, probably most of your hands would get raised. There's also positive implications. The Heidelberg Catechism says it's not enough just to say I'm not going to stab people, right? 
Is it enough if we do not kill our neighbor? No, for God requires us to love our neighbors, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, to prevent injury, and also to do good to our neighbor. So there's a, there's a continuum here of, I'm going to actively murder you. I hate you and want bad for you. I'm indifferent, and I'm not doing anything. All of those are in the continuum of murder until you cross over into active concern and love. And Jesus makes this very clear when he goes on in chapter 5 to say this, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lex talionis, this, this idea of justice that if something has been done to you, you can get somebody back. That's fair. That's equity. But Jesus says in the kingdom that I'm coming to bring, the gospel-transformed heart and mind does not look for fairness for yourself. Does not look for justice for yourself. Rather, he says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I know that many of you have heard a sermon on this, and basically the idea is this, to be slapped on the right cheek was a backhand, a backhanded slap. And we don't live in an honor and shame culture, but that culture was an honor and shame culture. Basically, what Jesus is saying is not if somebody assaults you and is trying to kill you, but rather if somebody in a public space dishonors you with a slap to the cheek, turn to him the other also. Who cares? Don't be so full of pride that you can't take an affront to your status and identity. Let it go. But it was taken so seriously in that day and age that there was actually legal recourse if somebody slapped you in a public space. If you were a higher-up official and somebody lower smacked you in the face in a public space, you could get their ear cut off. We don't quite have the same rules. But Jesus is saying, look, if somebody dishonors and offends you, absorb it. He explains it a step further. If somebody sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The tunic was your undergarment. Your cloak was your outer garment. You basically had two. He says, if somebody sues you, brings legal action against you to try to take your tunic, give to him your cloak as well. The cloak was so important that in a poor person's world, it might be their only source of protection from the weather. It was often their bedding as well. It was written in Jewish law later on that you could not take a poor person's cloak for a pledge overnight. So basically like this, if you were a poor person and you said, no, I promise you I will come and do the work for you, you might say, okay, give me your cloak as a pledge. So I would give you my cloak saying I'm going to come back and do the work but you could only keep it during the day. You had to give me my cloak back that night because it might very well be the thing that was protecting me from the weather, the very thing I slept on. It was vital to who I am if I'm a poorer person. Jesus says if somebody sues you for your undergarment that nobody sees, give to him your very protection, your outer garment. It's better to go naked than it is to be broken in relationship with your brother. And then he takes it even a step further when he talks about going a mile or two. If somebody says, I, I need you to go one mile, forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. And of course, if you've heard something about this, this is basically the, the right of the Roman army who were the occupiers in that day and age to conscript anyone under their territory for work for them, to dig a trench or to carry their, their equipment for a mile. The Jewish people hated the Roman enemy occupiers. 
And Jesus says, if one of them forces you, which you have to do to carry their stuff for a mile, offer to go a second mile for them. Jesus is calling his disciples to something that was completely radical, to surrender all that you have and all that you are out of love. Craig Keener commentated on this saying, followers of Jesus should have no honor or property worth defending compared with the opportunity they have to show how much they love God and everyone else. Jesus is calling his disciples to a radical, countercultural view of themselves and of others. Not to protect what's yours, but to willingly give it away. And he goes on to explain it a step further. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbors, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Martin Luther explained this when he said, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good for his neighbor. Or though he has opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could have clothed him, if you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death. So when we look at, at the sixth commandment, do not murder, sounds easy, but of course Jesus makes it really hard. He said it's your attitude towards your brothers and sisters, it's your attitude towards your enemies, and it's your unwillingness to intervene on the defenseless, the weak, and even those who you disagree with and, and have reason to hate. How do we live this out? What does it actually look like? Well, Jesus, in another passage, explains it when a certain man comes up to him and tries to ask about what he's supposed to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Do those. And the man says, okay, I've kept those. You know, like he's going on. He says, well, the basics of it are like love God and love your neighbor, right? I, I, I've done that. Okay, but what... Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, a certain man was on a journey to Jericho, and on the road, he was attacked by robbers who beat him, stripped him naked, and left him for dead. And along that same road came two fellow Jews, priests, religious men, and each one of them saw the man beaten, naked, and lying, dying on the side of the road, and each of the priests turned and walked away from him. But a Samaritan who would have been his enemy, did something different. You want to know what it looks like to not murder? It looks like doing what the Samaritan does. What does he do? Well, we read it in Luke chapter 10. But a Samaritan, it says in verse 33 of Luke 10, as he journeyed, came to where the Jewish man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. To not murder to actively love as Jesus calls us to, is to see and have compassion. It is to be moved with empathy. The man journeying sees this guy beaten and he puts himself in his place and wonders what would it be like if that was me. And He's moved to the very core of his being. 
And by being moved to the core of his being, he's actually moved to action. It says then that he goes on to say that he went to him where the two priests avoided him. This man went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He didn't avoid him. He got near to him. He actually had to touch the man to care for his wounds, to pour on the oil and wine, to put him on his own animal and to bring him to the inn and care for him by hand. Proximity was a part of him loving this man. And it was costly. It took time and money. The oil and wine were his. The animal was his. The time was his. The two denarii that he gives to the uh, innkeeper are two days wages, a couple hundred dollars. And he says, look, I'll pay for whatever. I want to care for this man. To love actively, the opposite of murder, involves empathy, proximity, and generosity. In other words, to sum this up, to not murder is to love our enemies and to protect and care for the weak and the most vulnerable and the outcast and the suffering and the foreigner and the widow and the minority and the list can go on. But the challenge for us today is to the extent that our culture or we move away from God and the gospel, we will fail to value life well. John Paul II in the early 90s coined the phrase culture of life. What is it to develop a culture of life? And a couple years later in his treatise Evangelium Vitae, which basically means gospel of life, he explained how there is today in our culture in the West a culture of death that is opposed to the culture of life that's formed out of the gospel and a view of God that comes from that. And basically, here's how John Paul explained it. He said, individuality and freedom in the West now is actually divorced from a belief in objective truth or moral good or even a belief in God. And when you take individuality and freedom and divorce it from those beliefs in God or truth, along with adding the modern aim of achievement and enjoyment in life, that's really the goal. I need to achieve stuff and I need to enjoy life. You combine these two and what you get is the devaluing of life in the secular West. Because you know what today's view is? Life is worth living so long as it is productive or pleasurable. Life is worth living so long as it is productive or pleasurable. And if it's not, it's your choice if you want to end it or end it for somebody else. Now, we don't all go to that extreme, but that's actually undergirding a lot of the decisions that are being made at the higher level and even in our lives. Life is only worth living if it's pleasurable or productive. And look, what John Paul was getting at was not that secular cultures like ours can't value life. They can. But without a view of God or truth, our valuing of life is very tenuous. And those who are on the fringes of our culture's values will find themselves cut off from being valued and worthy of life. It, put it more bluntly, if there's no God, if we're not created in the image of God, if there's no objective truth that every human being has value because of God, then there's very little reason for not killing the weak. Nietzsche saw this, 
If we are no different from the animal, then really the only reason to keep somebody alive is if they're doing something. So it's not that far removed from an idea of the lone wolf. We think of the lone wolf as a maverick or as a person who's you know, kind of rust and on, robust and on their own, but actually a lone wolf is a wolf that's going to die. It was a wolf that was kicked out of the pack. So you have a wolf pack, right? And when a wolf is kicked out, it's kicked out because the alpha male or alpha female decide that that wolf is antisocial, it's not good for the pack, or it's weak and sick, or it's aging. A weak, sick, aging, or antisocial wolf was kicked out of the pack. A lone wolf is most likely going to die. It was a drain on the pack, or it was a detriment to the pack. It couldn't contribute anymore, so you got rid of it. What's to keep a completely secular society from doing the same thing? There's actually very little. It might be okay right now to keep most lives, but clearly at the fringes, that's not the case. Let's even think about the most vulnerable in our own society, right? The weak, the suffering, those who can't contribute, those who don't have a voice, the unborn. Just last year, there were 500,000, more than 500,000 lives ended before birth. They don't have a voice. In the past 40 years, more than 50 million lives have been ended before birth. Did you know that if a baby is identified in the womb through screening to be with Down syndrome, it is a 75% chance that they will be aborted. Three out of four babies identified as having Down syndrome will be aborted. What does that tell you about how life is valued? If you're not pretty enough, smart enough, athletic enough, you're not worthy of life. If you're gonna be a drain on me, if it's gonna be difficult to raise you, then maybe we shouldn't have you. Now our culture would say that's your choice, but underneath that is a devaluing of life. It is removed from an objective view of truth and from God as creator and us being made in his image. That's at one end of the weakness scale. The other end is the sick and the aging and the disabled. Euthanasia-assisted suicide is the unnatural ending of a life. In every place where it has been legalized, it has gone down a slippery slope of more and more people being euthanized. In Holland, which has had uh, several news stories done on some of the more egregious cases of this, they've found that now one of the things that you can be euthanized for is mental illness, PTSD, um, for being autistic severely. And half of mental cases where youth, that were euthanized, doctors actually disagreed. One doctor was in favor of euthanizing, the other one was not, and they went forward with it. 7% of those who were euthanized in, in Holland did not request it. One woman in her 30s who had dealt with mental illness and some other things was completely torn up inside about a uh, romantic relationship that broke up that she asked to be euthanized and was. 
Now, what's to keep that from happening? Nothing. It's her choice. Her life's not worth it. But Christianity values life because it is grounded in the value of life that is given to us from God. It says that we are created in the image of God. Our very life is the breath of God in us, and we are made for eternity. And that every part of our days are in God's hands, or they are meant to be. We see this in Psalm 139, which we had read earlier. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, I can't get away from you, God. Wherever I go, you are there. In fact, you've known me from before I was born, and you know me till the day I die. The psalmist says, for you know, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb from conception. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every one of your days has been written in his book, and they are in his hand. From conception to natural death, we are meant to give ourselves over to the sovereignty of God and to protect the lives of others and his plan for them from beginning to end. The Christian view is this. All life is sacred. The unborn and the aging, the sick and the severely disabled, and all life is meant to be equally valuable. It's meant to be. But as we've been looking over the past month at things going on in our culture over the past couple of years, the question probably needs to be asked, are black lives actually as valuable as white in our culture? Are they? Depending on your political perspective, what I was just talking about is much easier for you to hear than what I'm about to talk about. When did you feel outrage or grief? A month ago, there were shootings. It was the days after 4th of July. At what point in that week did you feel outrage and grief? Was it on Tuesday, July the 5th, when Alton Sterling was shot by a policeman in Baton Rouge? Is that when you felt your grief and outrage? Or was it at least then on Wednesday when Philando Castile was shot and killed in Minnesota? Or was it not until Thursday, July 7th, when officers Ahrens, Kroll, Smith, Thompson, and Zamaripa of the Dallas Police Force were shot by a sniper? When were you outraged and full of grief? the implicit racial bias that all of us carry, and we do, whether you're white or black or any color in between, you have implicit racial bias, which basically means we have a tendency to like people who are like us and to not be as comfortable with people who are not like us. We tend to assume cultural values that might be inherent to us as normative, even though they're actually normative to European culture or white culture or black culture. We all have implicit racial bias, and we have to look at the actual evidence we have a country that has a history of racism. We really do. And there are problems of failing schools and unjust sentencing and crime and poverty. 
And I've found over the past couple of years, I have to actually ask myself, do I actually even care? And I'm not just saying that for rhetorical effect, I actually do wonder, do I care? Because I have a tendency to think, well, that's their problem. It's not mine. But there's a vast difference when I raise my kids to say, hey, if you're in trouble, go to the police. If you're lost, go to the police. If you're in danger, go to the police. I think if I was an African-American dad, I would not say the same things. At least not right now. Jesus-like love for our black brothers and sisters is going to take humility, presence, and sacrifice. The humility to say, I don't have all the answers. The presence to enter in and listen to other people's pain. And the sacrifice of my time and my comfort. Listening, learning, praying, and confessing is probably going to be a big, heavy need. The unborn and the aging the black, the minority. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about laws or politics right now. I'm actually not. What I'm talking about is our attitude and posture as a follower of Christ. The gospel must affect how we interpret the world and how we approach our politics, not the other way around. The gospel must approach must affect how we view everything, not the other way around. I think that if we're going to live out Jesus' call to fulfill this command, that we should have outrage and sorrow at every single life that is ended ever. We should have outrage and sorrow when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are shot and killed, as well as when the Dallas police are shot and killed, and even even when Micah Johnson, the sniper who killed the Dallas police, had to be put down. We should grieve at every death. Killing the unborn is wrong. Hating the doctors who perform such things is also wrong. I remember thinking this a number of years ago, this whole idea of really having the right mentality of grief for all deaths when Osama bin Laden was killed. I actually remember hearing that news and sort of having one of those American sort of celebratory insides in me, like, yeah, all right, we got him. And then I thought, gosh, would Jesus have done that? Oh, I don't think it's ever right to celebrate the death of somebody. Now, maybe, maybe the right response would have been relief. The few Thank you, God, that he has been stopped. But even with the death of Osama bin Laden, it should have been grief. That somebody had so severely rejected God and humanity that they had gone the road that they'd gone down and needed to be stopped the way they needed to be stopped. I don't think Jesus was shooting off fireworks and high-fiving just because it was Osama bin Laden. I think there was grief at the death of everyone. So, 
Jesus radically reinterprets the sixth command, and I think we're all guilty. And here's the challenge of this whole thing is that we can't live in the sacrificial love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and generosity that he calls us to. We just can't. We can't, but he did, and he did for us. That's what the Bible tells us. Look at Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, the prophet predicts the death of Jesus when he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence. and There was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus not only said, turn the other cheek, he offered his cheeks to those who beat him and ripped out his beard and then hung him naked, deeply ashamed and dishonored as he died on the cross. Jesus was falsely sued, if you would, falsely accused. He didn't just give up his tunic, he gave up his life innocently, and he did not defend himself. Christ surrendered his life to injustice and to murder so that we who deserve the death penalty might be pardoned and receive life. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the power for us to love the unworthy and the enemy. We said in our confession of faith, it is by grace we have been saved. It is by grace we have been saved. We really, really need to understand that, that it's, it's not by being beautiful or intelligent or gifted or achieving a lot. It's not by having the right race, being born in the right place. It's not by merit or goodness or religiousness. It is by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is this, Christ loved me enough to die for me, and it was my sin that put him there. If you believe this to be true, if you believe that Christ died for you is true, the only way to withhold love, even from an enemy, is to think you deserve God's love and mercy, and they don't. It's to reject the gospel outright. But when the gospel of unmerited grace and radical love begins to melt your heart, it enables us to have a right view of ourself and of others, more humble, more empathetic, more generous. And I think the gospel is also the prism the lens through which we need to view the world and others. That all of us are made in the image of God. All of us are made for eternity. All of us are equally valuable. And all of us are sinners. All of us need grace. All of us need the cross of Christ. To the extent that the gospel melts my heart and shapes my view, to that extent, I'll have the humility, the compassion, the generosity, the sacrificial love to love even you as Jesus has for me. Let's pray.
God, our creator, you have given us life, but we take life so lightly when it's not ours. We thank you that even those of us who are murderers, you offer forgiveness to. There is no sin that we can do that your cross did not pay for. There's no guilt that we feel that you did not bear. And so while we fall short and have many, many stories of how we have broken your call and your command, we cast ourselves upon you, upon your mercy and your grace, knowing that your loving arms are enough to bring us into your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.